Hi there. So another week, another dose of inspiration for you for free from the High Performance Podcast. Welcome along. And first of all, thanks for all the comments about the Oli Gunnar Solskjaer episode last time out. We have had so many questions and comments and Damien and myself will discuss them at the end of this episode. So stick around for that. And don't forget to join the High Performance Conversation. You can either follow at Jake Humphrey or at High Performance on Instagram. There's loads going on there. So we'd love you to be part of the conversation on social media. As for this week, well, the conversation you're about to hear is one of the most uplifting, life-affirming and inspiring conversations that Damien and myself have had since the High Performance Podcast launched. You know, my partner tells, says that he senses freedom. He senses that I go on, on, I jump and I'm not thinking of what's coming next in the way of like, either, I'm not thinking technically. The dancers that I love watching are the dancers that have complete freedom in their eyes and you see a dancer that has complete Complete freedom and a dancer that almost feels like he's just chatting with you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, I'm Jay Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. And look, you can't do a job like this alone. Thankfully, Damien Hughes, professor, lecturer, author, super brain is alongside me and the two of us um, are doing this interview in central London and we're meeting a man whose story is, I suppose in many ways, a fairy tale. Just the second black male after Carlos Acosta to reach the rank of principal dancer with the Royal Ballet. Not only that, his story started in a poor suburb of Lisbon in Portugal. When you also consider he lost his father at a young age, he went into foster care. I think the rare beauty of his story really becomes apparent. Um, I think we're as excited as each other about doing this interview. I know I've been, I've been buzzing all day about this. What are you looking forward to hearing about? Yeah, I'm incredibly excited about our next guest, uh, Jake, because... When uh, I was reading about him, it reminded me of a of a story of seminal moments of um, a lady called uh, Gillian Lynn, who was Andrew Lloyd Webber's choreographer. So she choreographed Cats and all of his big shows. And she tells a story that when she was a young girl growing up, her teachers often felt that she was restless or she couldn't behave or sit still in class. And her parents took her to a doctor. And the doctor uh, asked the parents to step outside the surgery. And when he left the room, he turned the radio up slightly. And then when his when her parents were outside, he asked them to look back in. And Gillian was twirling and pirouetting around the doctor's surgery. And the doctor had said to her parents, she's got nothing wrong with her. She's just a dancer. And she needs to be in an environment where she's liberated. And I think those seminal moments in life are where we could really explore and get into some really fascinating areas with our next guest. Well, I think we will, because while you were telling your lovely story, our guest today was nodding his head and smiling, so it obviously rings some bells. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hi. Nice to, have, nice to be here. Thank you so oh, much for having me. So nice to meet you. Um, let's, let's kind of get straight into it then and ask you whether what Damien's just described there does ring bells for your own experience. Absolutely. You know, when I first discovered dance, it was almost like a 
breath of fresh air. Suddenly I, I found myself, suddenly I understood what my legacy could be and what I was in this world. Because for a long time, I always felt like an outsider, a little bit of an outsider. I didn't like what other boys of my age liked, maybe. I was always a bit different and just always full of energy, ADHD, that's what, what, that's what people call it. But I, I was never really quiet and I wasn't, I wasn't the best student or I couldn't focus very much. So the, the teachers could never really place me or never really gave me credit uh, for being a good student. So I always felt I was a bit like a bit of a naughty child until I actually was able to join this incredible community center in where I, where I come from in Pastar, so Irish, Portugal, Lisbon. <laughs> and um, there was a dance group there, an African dance group. And obviously being part of a neighborhood where most people are immigrants from Africa, different countries of Africa, um, I always felt that it was very important to be part of uh, something that really would connect me with my father coming from Guinea. And, you know, so when I started doing African dance, I do remember my dad being quite proud, which is kind of a weird thing to say that a dad is proud of, of a this boy doing ballet or dance or something, but he was, he was because he was, I was doing something of my roots, something African, something cool. So when I, when I discovered that I love dancing, suddenly I knew what my place was in the world and suddenly I felt important for the first time I felt special. And that is something that really has carried until now with me, it stayed with me. But it's one thing to find something you love and to feel special. It's another thing to make it all the way to be the principal dancer at the Royal Ballet, which is without question one of the most prestigious roles in dance anywhere in the world. So there's obviously more to you than just being a dancer because to get to this point, you have had to make sacrifices, you've had to dedicate, you've had to work hard. We were discussing before we started recording that really away from the stage, you live the life really of a professional sports person. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a huge journey. So you start training. I started my training when I was around 11, which is not the earliest because some boys and girls start doing classical training when they're four. Wow. And so I, I started late, but obviously I was a very active child. I did African dance and as well as part of my curriculum of uh, stuff that I was doing in that community center, athletics was another one. And I did hurdles. So I had trained a lot of my flexibility and my strength. So I was quite of a muscular ready, like my physique was kind of ready to start doing ballet. So when I decided to start doing ballet, my adaptation was huge, huge, because obviously the muscles for ballet are very specific. You have to rotate the, your turnout from the hips and have control from your abs and everything. You just feel like you're locked, you know, repressed for the first years that you start doing ballet because it's just rule after rule after rule. Nothing is right. You have to always keep striving for more. So from the beginning, I understood that it wasn't going to be easy, you know, although I had the talent and physical shape to do it. Um, it was going to be a complex process, but I had such incredible support from the beginning. People understood that, okay, yeah, I might not be the most focused uh, person, but I work hard, you know, and I want to learn. So the first few years were, weren't easy. The, to learn the ballet technique is very hard because it's as well as physical as, as, is, as it is uh, psychological. Yeah. You know, you have to really be focused and understand. So... I mean, to get here, it's a huge journey, I can tell you, but um, to become then a principal after all this time has been almost like an incredible reward. So where did the work ethic come from? Okay, yeah. So I think to be a dancer, you know that you can't be a dancer and you can't be a successful dancer without that work ethic. Because even when you start at age 11, which is kind of late, um, you come to school at seven o'clock in the morning, you do an hour 
rehearsal of like, uh, not rehearsal, but class of Pilates or gyrotonics or something to strengthen you. And this is at age 11, you know, it's an, it's unheard of. You have to wake up so early. I struggled and, to get my daughter to do <laughs> 20 minutes of schoolwork. And guess evening. what? I used to get myself at school alone. I used to get on a train alone and go all the way to the center of Lisbon what? to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For my first three years before I was adopted. But yeah, so I did this, started at seven. And um, then after that, you'd have a ballet class, which is two hours. So ballet class for a kid at 11 years old is really boring, guys. You start on the floor and you do painful, crumping exercise of your toes and then your uh, arches and then all the way, work all the way to your body until you get to the bar and start doing bar exercises, which is what all the little kids want to do. And then after bar, you do the center and then little jumps. So this is, goes for two hours and you have the teacher telling you, come in and squeeze your toes and jump higher. And it's, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. And then after that, you have contemporary class, which is trying to a little bit break that stiffness that comes with doing ballet training. And then after that, we have choreography class where you learn how to be a bit more creative. And then we have maths, Portuguese. And then later in the day, you might have stretch class for like two hours. So it was a full, I've learned about full days from the age of 11. And that's like every ballet dancer wants to become a real professional. And it never changes. I mean, I still get to the Royal Opera House at nine o'clock in the morning and do an hour and a half warm up before I do the ballet class. And then a full day of rehearsals from 12 to 6.30 if there's no performance. And if there's performance, we finish at 5.30 and then start the performance at 7.30. So they have a two hour break to rest, eat, put the makeup on, we warm up and then the show. And then we finished at 11. So it's, it's full on. The story of the environment that you came from, so your community where you first went to the dance hall and then to take the train and, and make that commitment, what was the response from your family unit, your friends in that community when you started down this route? My family was going through a process of huge change. My dad got very sick and then he ended up uh, dying. And, um, and how old were you then, Marcelo? I was nine, nine. So this is before I started the proper training. And so those years were coming up to going, joining the conservatory were very difficult because uh, my mom really wasn't uh, coping well, uh, just with her, her health as well. And with the fact that she, she had two kids to provide for and she wasn't working. So it was all very like a very complex time for me to get into something so, so in our eyes elite. And, you know, like in, in those times I thought it was so. And, but when the opportunity came up, my family was so eager for me to take it and to really do something of myself because it, I was going to the center of Lisbon because I came from, I come from the co more of the coast, a bit outside of Portugal, like a suburb. And to be, I had never been even gone to the center of Lisbon until I did the audition. When the psychologist that took me to this audition, when she took me to the center of Lisbon, um, I felt a huge sense of responsibility and thought like, oh my God, this is not just for me. This is for, for the community that I come from. This is for my mom right. to provide better. So I had a huge weight on my shoulders and when everything went well, it was incredible. But I think it was, uh, the community felt very inspired that I was stepping far and I was waking up very early in the morning. So they were go. supportive of Very you. supportive. And the community center made sure that I kept on the right tracks. They helped me buy the materials that I need, you know, food, provided me with food. And how much of it, that, like your journey into dance, how much of it wasn't, like, were you conscious of it was an escape from some of the trauma that was happening in your, in your own personal life? Huge, huge. And the fact that I had such a huge support as well, like I did always feel like 
that I was getting not this special treatment, but I was being taken care of. And that's mm. something for me that I needed. You know, I needed some my teachers to look at me and say, like, you know, you got something big here. You have talent and we are going to be here for you no matter what. And that suddenly I felt like this is this is my place. You know, this is where I'm going to be able to to grow and become a better person and to help the next generation, you know, and I, f I still feel like that. I'm still that same little boy. He will never leave me. It's crazy, but he will never. I was fascinated when I was reading about in this youth center, you had access to a psychologist, mm. even at a very young age. What kind of messages were you receiving? Oh, the, this was incredible. Actually, the community center, I always talk very fondly about them because they got me out of trouble, you know, being in a poor suburb, you know, you have a lot of options, bad and good options. And the community center kept me on the right tracks. You know, they kept a close eye on me because they knew that, I, you know, um, I wanted to have, do something on myself. And we were so lucky as well that the community center knew that obviously people with broken families or families that were struggling needed a bit of support. And this lady, she was like our friend in a community center. So I never looked at her as a a doctor, like someone that it was, I'm going to the office and talk to her. She was just around us. She was helping us. She would help us with homework and talk to us whilst doing the homework. And so I never really understood that she was a psychologist until I actually was much older. And then I re-encountered her in Lisbon and I was like, wow, so you do this work of like incredible, like almost like a disguised work of like dealing with these kids and giving them, because you don't want to be a kid thinking, oh, I'm, I have my psychologist's appointment now. No, it's all about like blending it in and making it all happen in a very positive and supportive way. And the fact that she saw something in me, I could be a, become a dancer, that's huge. She's incredible. One of the themes that Jake and I have explored in this series has been this idea of the golden seed, that somebody sees something in you mm. before you recognize it yourself. So would you attribute the person that sold that seed was this psychologist in the in the community center? Absolutely. To think that, I mean, I was I was a wild child as well at that time, you know. I, I wasn't sure if I would have put my egg in that or if I like would have uh, thought that I would be here today. You know, I, I used to leave home very early in the morning and not come back until late. You know, I had that kind of freedom and like lose my shoes and walk around barefoot and like wild. And the fact that she looked at me and focused me and said like, you know, we're going to Lisbon, you're going to be about, you, you can be a professional dancer. That's huge. Like mm. I would have never seen that, especially because you know that you need a lot of support to be able to a career like this. And she saw that. So. And I, I, I'm interested in, how important for your journey the death of your father was. Because we've also spoken with numerous people, you know, Tom, Tom Daly is yeah. one of them. And we'll hear from Billy Munger in this series as well, who was the young racing driver who crashed and lost both of his legs. And there is this, if you research high achieving people, there is this belief that tragedy leads to triumph. Damon's spoken about it a lot. And I wonder whether the energy that's in you now perhaps comes from from somewhere and maybe it is the loss of your father that is providing part of the energy for you life is so fleeting and uh, for me to witness that at such a young age you may be thinking that i have to grab an opportunity when i see it i have to to really work hard and really make the most of it because it goes it goes so fast so that that's the legacy that the death of my dad really gave me i feel like it's that i have to really make sure that i make my mark and i do everything that i can to really live 
fully and be myself, be very honest with myself. Even when I was thinking about my sexuality and everything, I was thinking, no, I know I have to be me. Otherwise, I'll never be able to achieve what I want because I'll be disguised. I'll be, I, I won't fulfill. And that, I think that's a legacy that my, the death of my dad left me, that this um, incredible thirst to, to fulfill, to fulfill my potential, you know? I think we live in a world, you know, now where people are more nervous than ever to really be themselves. I often say that criticism is the enemy of creativity. So I will sometimes, even a little thing like um, a social media post, I think, oh yeah, I'm going to post that because I love it. And a part of my brain goes, well, I think people might criticize you for that or people won't like that. And so I don't do it. And actually that moment of creativity has been ruined by to potential criticism. And I, I'm, I am so in awe of you because you are, you seem, and you, you're young, yet you seem so solid about who you are and what you stand for. Like, let's talk about your sexuality. You're openly gay. Do you think that you could be a dancer as good as you are if you were hiding anything? Could you not be out and be as good a dancer as you are? I, I'm telling you that right now, absolutely not. Really? First of all, because I'm a terrible liar, which is a good <laughs> quality and a bad quality as well. Uh, and I would have probably like just feel very stiff and very afraid to express that, that uh, obviously as well, there's this discussion about masculinity in ballet, you know, that I knew that becoming a dancer, I would have to be on stage pouring my love to this beautiful girl. Thank God they're all beautiful. It's really <laughs> nice to look at. My friends in the company are mostly girls. I must say, like I have an incredible group of girlfriends and I actually, I'm in love with them. Not obviously in a sexual way, but like, like I'm, I'm in awe of their beauty, awe of their work ethic, their talent is huge. So I'm, 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 uh, I can fall in love with them when I'm doing a role, but I knew that I would never probably go on stage and tell the story of me falling in love with another man. And I was aware of that. And I knew in the beginning, I was thinking, have a filter, be masculine, be strong, and um, don't make that your legacy. Like, just, just, just be a dancer, you know, just be a straight dancer and everything's going to be fine. And the more I tried to do that, the least I felt like I was moving forward. I kept, I was, I, I just felt like I was, same that that same boy that was still in the closet trying to understand movies and stuff and I was like no actually if I'm going to do this for real and if I'm going to really fulfill it I'm going to be that 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 person and love is so many different shape shape ways and appreciation I, I appreciate woman the woman's shape and the way that they are and their strength so much that I can portray that in a role and that's not going to hold me back and that was one of the questions that I had in the beginning is me being gay going to maybe make the choreographers think, oh, I'm not going to make him play the big hero, the big hero, like soldier, because, you know, he's a bit feminine or he's gay and stuff. But we're actors and that's what actors do. We are not only incredible athletes, but we are actors as well. And, you know, that's, that's part of it. But did you experience any prejudice or any, any of that kind of misunderstanding? You know, it's quite funny because... I've been talking with my friends so much about this lately. I've had incredible conversations with them and uh, we've shared this idea. So since you are born as a gay person, as a homosexual, you understand that there's something different and that's something that you have to have like almost a, a filter about. And it's not something that you come to your parents at for, oh, I like a boy, you know, like you really try to find your way in this very complex world that doesn't really accept you fully because you don't see two men in the screen often, especially when I was young, or you don't see a story the, that the Sleeping Beauty is opened up by another Sleeping Beauty and they, you know, and they are two women happy yeah. forever. You don't see these things. So I knew that for a straight man being a ballet dancer, they will come to the company and they'll be very sure that 
that that they'll play the 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 famous Romeo and they'll play these great romantics because that's their legacy, that's what they know and they feel very confident. But for a gay person in the ballet world, you know that there's always that little doubt, although we have these incredible examples like Nuriev, Rodolphe Nuriev, this gay icon that broke boundaries and stuff, but it was very different times and it was almost like a unique, rare species and someone that really talked loudly. But that, there's that, this is a very uh, complex discussion because... Um, you, we do go through this journey that other people don't. So when was the moment when, because I think being 100% honest with yourself and with other people is almost like a secret superpower. If you can get to that point in life, you have achieved something because not many people are there. When was the moment where you decided that you, what, whether it's your sexuality or anything else, you are going to be 100% honest and open because y- you can dance better that way? Do you remember the moment you decided to do that? Because it's brave. Um, I don't know. You know what? Even when I came to England at age 16, that was when I came from Portugal, I never really announced it. I never really announced that I'm this or that. I just, well, I experimented all sorts of way. I had a lot of fun and I just kind of like made sure that I was fulfilling any need that I need and to really understand who I am to grow. So it was a very like molding process. And even today, I'm still finding out things about myself that I know will unlock things that I don't know, even during this quarantine, I've had like an incredible wake up call of how I want to really like, you know, be perceived in the future and what am I going to give to the career that I'm doing? And, you know, so it's a a complete slow burner almost, but you know, but it has been part of me since probably I was 16. I think that's when maturity really kicks in, I guess. I'm really interested to talk to you about self-belief because Mm -hmm. as a, as a parent of two young children and Damien's got children as well, the one thing I really want my kids to have is that belief that they can go and achieve anything. And you seem to have an awful lot of self-belief. Tell me what your emotion is like before you walk out on stage. Mm, okay. No, I love this. I love, it's the best moment for me. The, those moments before the curtain are the most exciting ones because it's, it's a gamble. It's a gamble. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how you're going to feel. And I'm not someone, a talent or someone that, because there's a lot of dancers that know exactly the plan. The curtain will come up and they'll smile this way and they'll walk this way. And and I don't ever have a plan, which is quite stressful for some of my coaches and colleagues and the dancers that dance with me. But I, before the curtain rises, is this excitement of how am I going to feel? And you know, sometimes you don't feel as spectacular, as excited as you do. But um it, for me, those minutes before coming on stage, is, it's the possibility that for me is so exciting, you know. And do you have a mindset to make sure that you perform? Because exactly like being a, a sports person, you have to perform over the given period of that performance. You've got to give your best. Yeah. So, but this, com- this comes from all that incredible work that I do backstage. So I don't go on stage being afraid that I'm going to fail on something because I put my all in those rehearsals. And, you know, I rehearse from... 10 in the morning until 6 or 30 at night, like I'm exhausted. My, my toes hurt, my hip hurts, everything at the end of the day. But when I get home, I'm like completely relaxed in the sofa, at peace with the work that I put on. The moment that you start holding back and you don't do your gym or you don't do your Pilates class or you are not eating well or sleeping well, not stretching after rehearsals, you know that you go on set and you might be, oh, I'm not prepared. But... I, I don't let myself be that person that goes on stage feeling like that. Otherwise, it would be terrible. So do you, I've heard Yo-Yo Ma speak about this in terms of performance, that the, the perception is the work is done in the shadows. Yeah. The play is the bit when you're on the stage where 
rather than view it the other way around. Yes. Is that your yeah, perception? Yeah. I, I, I don't think I could ever be a ballet dancer or successful or happy having to deal with this, these insecurities on stage because I do that a lot in my process in the studio. So before there's a parada, which is a duet, which is very complex lifts. And then after you do a complex lift in a classical shape, you do a solo, which is stamina. So you do the lift, heavy lifting. And then after the heavy lifting, you do the stamina work, which you have to do like a two minute complete uh, constant jumping solo. So you, it's very hard. My coaches would tell you I'm very picky, very, my process is slow. I don't get into a studio because there's some dancers that get into a studio. They want to do it the first day to impress the coaches, the dancers they are dancing with, and they want to be the star from day one. I've always thought that I'm going to use the time in the studio for myself. No one is here. I have no audience. I'm going to do the first bit of the solo. I'm not happy. Let's repeat again. Oh, what about this shape? So I work meticulously what I want to do and how I want to feel, you know, and understand what the character is. So all of that work is building that confidence and that confidence. So in the moment, the day that we come into studio and I tell my coach, yes, today I feel like I can run the whole thing. I, I, I have, the process has been so strengthening. The foundation is so concrete that then it's play, then it's fun. So for people listening to this then, how would you describe watching you? If you were to describe the experience of seeing you perform when you're at your very best, when all that work's been done, how would you describe it for our listeners? You know, my partner tells, says that he senses freedom. He senses that I go on, on, I jump and I'm not thinking of what's coming next in the way of like, either I'm not thinking technically, which for me, it's so important because I, uh, there are incredible dancers in a company, obviously. I mean, the Royal Ballet is incredible male and female dancers and each one has their quality. And uh, we have dancers that are technically sound, so I know exactly that they're going to do that and that. But emotionally, they don't reach me in a point that I'm looking at who they, what, what they must be feeling and their emotion. I'm thinking of how they are landing their first fifth position and how they're squeezing the glute before they jump to do the double tour and all these technical bits. And the dancers that I love watching are the dancers that have complete freedom in their eyes. And you see a dancer that has complete complete freedom and a dancer that almost feels like he's just chatting with you. Sure, which sounds very much like the young boy doing your audition in that community centre mm. of, I'm going to do my African dance regardless of what you expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you protect that young boy who's now on the big stages of the world to make sure that freedom is still is still at the essence I of what I love do. that question because it's things that I think a lot about, actually. Um, I've, that's, that's me being in the Royal Ballet. That's why I wanted to be here, to uh, people to understand that that's my special something that I can never let go. And my coaches know that I, I, I will never be, uh, I'll, I'll never be someone else. I'll never try to be someone else. I'll never try to be this uh, shapely prince or like the idea that the prince is that way and you'll act that way. I'll do how I feel. I'll, I'll do justice to my talent and what my legacy is. And um, to have a company that allows me to do that and my coaches, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Yeah. You know what I really like is when you're talking about the fact that you are going to be completely yourself publicly and on stage and privately, you're going to be just you and put it all out there. You are taking complete responsibility for yourself. And it's exactly the same experience when you go into the rehearsal room. You are taking 100% responsibility. And I think that is, it's a really healthy mindset to get into where you, if you can say to yourself, I 
Marcelino Sambe, I'm 100% responsible for my career, my life, my legacy, my performance, nobody else. That is a really good place to be, isn't it? And too often people hide behind excuses. No, not, not just excuses. I hide behind this insecurity and I don't tap into the insecurity because when you are feeling insecure, you got to talk it out. You got to have someone that has a support system that you can pour those things out and process it. The moment that you start locking it and like trying to give that, uh, trying the cold shoulder or try to make the coach responsible for you not performing or best or, you know, other elements, you are not really uh, working through the emotional state that an artist needs to have. Because we talk a lot on this podcast, actually, fault versus responsibility. And you are the perfect exponent of this because it wasn't your fault that you were born in a poor suburb where there's probably never been a ballet dancer in the Royal Ballet from where you come from. It wasn't your fault that your dad passed away when you were young. It wasn't your fault your mum couldn't look after you and so you were put into foster care. But despite all of those things, you still made it your responsibility to go and achieve the dream you always wanted rather than blame those outside forces. And I, but I felt those outside forces is what makes me want to yeah. uh, complete the circle, you know, complete my legacy. So all those elements, all everything that has happened to me has allowed me to uh, look back and say like, you know, I got to do this for these people that have done this for me. Like my mom, just even my mom uh, being able to like say, you know, go, you need to go. There's this family here. They, they can really take care of you and they are going to give you the best. The fact that she passed it on, it's almost like um, we we're playing tag for me to, you know, maybe pass it on in the future for someone else, you know. Which does lead us to the question of who are you passing on this baton to? Mm, so interesting. So I was teaching Kenyan dancers the other day, which Kenya doesn't have a big history of ballet, you know, and the fact that I was invited as to, to start coaching them through Zoom. So I'm teaching the class through Zoom. And I looked in, I leaned in, and in one of the classes, because there's many different groups, there's quite a few dance troops in Africa, in Kenya especially, and a great talents. And I looked and I saw this incredible, incredible girl, incredible girl, she, the perfect physique, you know, when, uh, uh, I don't know if we can say God, but when the spirits give you, drop a gift into people, they gave so much to this young girl. And I said, you know what? I want to know more about who this girl is. So my legacy is to find, start finding this, spotting these talents and make them believe that where I am, it's a possibility for them. So if you could pass on just one golden nugget of advice to that young girl in Kenya and she was open to listen to it, about how she could find herself on the stage of the Royal Ballet. What would your one bit of learning be then? I've, I've learned that sometimes when you hold your past against you, when you look back and you don't want to acknowledge that, yeah, you come from a place that is not successful or your family didn't give you this and that, and you hold that as like a negative connotation, that stops you from... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm developing, you have to use that as fuel. It's like that's fuel for you to do better. And I want to say anyone that comes from a place of with a dark, uh, dark past, with a family that couldn't stick together, you have to use that to to push you forward, you know, to give you more, to uh, to fulfill what your family couldn't do or your or your past couldn't do, you know, and that's that's a very important thing to unlock that uh, that drive. It reminds me, Damien, of the conversation we had with Stephen Bartlett when he said he always believed he could, and that was his kind of superpower for achieving anything he wanted. He just believed it would happen. And yes. I think if you can get to that point, often it will happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can like yourself. You know, I uh, often kind of like played with my mind, kind of like being very like um, overly humble, saying like, "Oh, am I am I going to do this?" And I'm going to do. Although inside, I know it's going to happen. You know, you know, it's little so can you like expand this. on that. That's really yeah. interesting. I believe that I'm going to be able to do this role, and I'm going to be able to do a role that might not be me or something. I, I believe that all those things are going to come, but I don't think it's uh, up to me alone. It's up to as well. The, and what I don't trust on is other people. They are the element that I have to maybe change their mind for, for them to be able to see me maybe as a prince. You know, because I haven't done many prince roles. But you still give absolute dedication to it. Because I think there's always a danger you can go, well, it's going to happen. So no, I'll just, yeah, 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 I'll just yeah. have a cheeseburger. No I'll way. just lay in bed today. <laughs> I just won't stretch after my rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. Because you still believe it's going to happen. No. You seem to have the belief it's going to happen. But you're also absolutely making sure it's going to happen yeah. with the hard work and the dedication. You, it, one it, without the other won't work. It's in my eyes. It's in my eyes. I look at the director and the director has to trust me because I do put the work. I do everything that I have to do to be, to open, the curtains open and you're going to have a good show. So I want that repertoire. I want to be able to like do things that maybe a dancer of my shape and my look haven't done it. I want to break those barriers because I'm ready. You know, it's, Is it not exhausting though? Well, you should or, or does it give you energy? Well, you should see me when I get home, though. <laughs> <laughs> My partner often looks at me and is like, why are you so like that? I'm like, I just need a break right now. I just need to yeah, yeah. sit here and watch a bunch of series and relax. So can I ask you a question that we've asked, again, a number of guests uh, that are at an elite level like yourself. How much of your success would you attribute to your physical gifts? And how much of it would you attribute to the mental side of performance? I feel like I've, I've been gifted in both both ways. So it's like I'm not 100% gifted body-wise and, and with the work ethic as well. I was very talented in the way that I've always wanted to do it. But I have to always constantly, constantly remind them that that talent, will the percentage will start dissipating if I don't put in the work. So it's, I don't feel like talent stays with you forever, you know, physical as well, talent. So it is such a balancing act because you have to trust that you have this natural ability that is going to like unlock the next level. But then as well, you got to put, you, you have to be constantly aware if you're not doing it like right, because uh, that's when injuries and, um, you know, that's when things start, can go wrong. And you had a big injury. You were out for months. I'm interested to know how you dealt with that setback. So, you know, it's almost like 
getting injured is terrible because you know they're going to have so much work to come back. That's the problem because once you when you're on the swing of it, like I I know that I'm I feel the confidence you know and jumping has always been my favorite thing to do. I've always loved jumping. It's something that really naturally came to me, and I see other colleagues that have to work really hard to get it. And um, so the moment that I couldn't jump because obviously I had a stress fracture on my shin, which is so bad for a ball dancer because it's it's the springs. So imagine a spring that is broken. And how did that happen? Uh, so stress fracture happens through. In my case, through overly overly ambitious. Right. So a season of the Royal Opera House commences in August 16th, imagine, and finishes in June, early June. So it's a uh, eleven months. Eleven months almost of non-stop performances, and at that time I was a soloist on the cusp of being promoted to first soloist, which is the next level. And then obviously being very eager and ambitious, I was doing all sorts of role, having a little niggle, and not even acknowledging it because I knew that if I say something, I might not be able to do the next role. And the roles kept coming and the director was very excited and pressed and, oh my God, this is all great. And then in the end of the season, I get promoted to first soloist. And then after that, dancers usually have like five weeks layoff, which some dancers rest, but obviously me being the young, overly ambitious person, I spend the whole summer dancing in Japan, America, Berlin, uh, France. So I had all scheduled private performances with another colleague of mine. So we kind of went and made money. During the summer, I was already, I already knew that something was really wrong because I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't jumping as, I, as well as I could. My old leg was numb at night, so I didn't feel my old leg because I had as well like problems with my nerves. And uh, my left lower back had a huge like contracted muscle because I, I was using my back rather than my glutes. So the old chain was beep. Not good. So, <laughs> so then I, when I got back to the work, I remember that then I had maybe like a few days off before I started the 11 month season again without having a full break. And I tried to jump in class and I was like, something is really wrong. And this is my first season as a first soloist. I went to the physio department and that day I had a scan and it was broken. And then, well, the nine month recovery started. So two months off completely and then slowly building from from age 11 technique learning all those terrible like footworks staying on the floor then the glutes and then let's get the bar and then do the bar for three months and then maybe get the center but like very slow recovery and that gave me such a huge huge power to now never go back there Oh really? You're not gonna take the risk again? You no. Now, now I understand the the gift of rest. I really felt like I was invincible, and that's a part of being naive and young and overly energetic. And now, I resting is like almost a gift. You know, it's I, it's very precious for a dancer. And how did you keep yourself sustained during that long nine month period of of re rehab? I did a lot of like reading, studying, like real, real, a lot of like exciting things that could further me as a person as well, as well as a dancer. Because when you are, when you start like as such a young age at 11, you, um, are in, you are brought into this world of like complete immersion and bubble of dance and dance and dance. And the moment that I had, didn't have that, nine months, you're a normal person, go, go off. You have a few months to just be, I was like, <gasps> what do I like? What do I want? Uh, okay, let's look at art all the museums, uh, hanged out with lots of drag queens, super excited people around London, had a normal life. And that really fed uh, my excitement to come back with a new perspective of things. And, and what did you learn about yourself as a person during that period then? I learned that I can inspire others, which I 
because it had been all about me, I never really had a moment to think like, actually, I can guide other people and I can like uh, talk about all sorts of issues, open up myself emotionally. And, and isn't it important that you can be happy also when you're not dancing? Because with the best one in the world, you will not dance forever because your body simply won't allow it. You have to make sure, and we see this so often, particularly with people, elite sports people like you, it's after the retirement that the demons come out and the issues come out. You need to be happy not doing what makes you happy. I, I agree completely. And, you know, that, that's why I say that those nine months were pivotal for my career and pivotal for me to then do that step to principle. I feel like if I haven't gone through that nine months of really understanding who I am, how I'm going to, and what do I want? What do I really want? What do you like? What do you believe in? I would have not looked at the director with those eyes of fire and you're like, he's ready. You know, I feel like you have to go through that process, you know? One thing I'm interested in in your world is you're a free spirit, right? Mm. And you really on stage, you are there for yourself, right? But so is this dancer and this dancer and this. How, how do you all operate together? Because it's about individual brilliance working as a team. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, but you know what? You are, in a, you, are a, you are a successful dancer when you can recognize others' talents. I always thought that. So I know that my friend has something that I don't have. And I appreciate that. And I aspire to be like that. So I always look at my friends and see something that I can take from them that it, it applies to me that I need to work on or something. So everyone has their place. And the moment that you can really understand your niche and understand what your strengths are going to be, that's when you, you get success, I feel. I love that because I think that applies to anyone listening to this. Yep. Um, no matter what their walk of life, what their business, what, their, what they do, it's so important to know that the people around you are your strength as well. That comes as well with my photography, like we were talking before, like me being able to abstract myself, take myself off me and look. I do a lot of looking in the opera house when I'm walking around because I'm telling you, I'm genuinely, there's so much talent. Anyone in that company could be a principal in any other company around the world. Obviously not everyone gets there. And that's the choice you make because that building is inspiring in the way that there's so many first beautiful people, not just beautifully physically, but like with intelligent brains, really exciting. And as well, they're like people that have devoted their lives. They've been there for 50 years. These ballet coaches, old ballet coaches, they're like have knowledge beyond that you can. And all of that is inspiring. And you have to, when, when you get to, uh, when you're in a big corporation, it's not a corporation, it's a company, but it's a corporation, you know, it's huge, it's huge theater. You have, to, you have to abstract yourself from yourself a little bit and look and see where, what you can gain from looking around. So if an amazing talent walks through the door and it's some dancer that they've discovered in another country and this, he comes over and he walks in and he has presence and he's bold, and you, are you excited and inspired by the presence of that person or are you threatened? Uh, so I can give you a concrete example with names and all. Yeah, go on. So when I was injured, nine months, obviously i just been promoted to first soloist. But like me, other, other dancers were injured at that time and incredible people were recruited from other companies, principals, coming in as first soloists. So they had to- Take doing your job. Basically replacing oh. me. Like, but like incredible dancers. When I say like incredible dancers that like, you look at them and they have everything that you think that it's, it's right. And the fact that they're as well, good people and all just makes you think like, whoa. And, I could have chosen to be like freaking out. Oh my God, director, please, what's happening? Uh, is my place being replaced? But no, I looked at him and I was like, well, this is just lighting my fire to when I come back. I want to be even like, I want to be even better than him, if that even possible. And um, 
these people that then joined, like these dancers, um, actually have been have lit a fire on me whilst I was injured. That actually made me believe, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back stronger, and I want that. I want to have that respect because sometimes when part of a corporation for so long you become part of the furniture, you know, you're just the table and people are used to see that beautiful table, but it's a table. And then when you buy a new chair, everybody's like, ooh, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> and you start thinking, okay, what do I need to bring when I come back? That is going to be the new painting on a wall. It's going to be exciting. So it was like that. See, what's interesting there is that you can have young children who are brilliant at ballet, but you have no idea whether they have got the ability to operate in an elite environment. And yeah, Marcelino talks about the ability to operate in that elite world. When did you learn that? So the, the, your transition from being a great individual dancer to being a great dancer as part of the organization I mean, required yeah. you to recognize strengths. When did that realization dawn my journey in the royal ballet hasn't been smooth guys so when i joined the company sure. <laughs> when i was 18 i came in fire uh, guns blazing i would join the company i wanted to be in front of the room in the ballet classes and i i thought like i thought that i want it all right now i was basically that kind of guy and that ambition that confident and quickly ballet masters and um teachers started like you know putting me in my place and that's right. when i understood that oh God, I'm part of this huge, incredible theater, and this is such a lucky position to be. And that was such a process of humbleness. Right. And through that process of like a bit of, actually sometimes a bit scary and in pain, like seeing ballet masters really putting you down and like, you know, telling you things that you don't agree with, but you have to swallow your pride and like, you know, be part of the group. It was a process. And the moment that I understood my position and what I represented in that company as well, that for me was a, a, a an incredible moment. That's when I realized that actually I have a place here. I'm loving this conversation. I could talk for an awful long Forever. time. <laughs> but I, look, we, the way we often wrap up these podcasts is with quick fire questions. Oh, ooh, I'm um, so here we go. All right, do your best. Do your best. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, we're going to start with three non-negotiable behaviors that the people around you have to buy into. Honesty, respect, creativity. Brilliant. Love that. You're good at these, what you worry about. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you give a teenage you just starting out? Look after yourself. <laughs> I know it sounds great, but it's true. Because, you know, you can go a bit crazy when you're a teenager and you're trying to do it all and then you get injured. So just look after yourself. We've talked a lot about success. How do you react to failure? I'm a good person to go through failure because I accept it and I think of the next, next move. I don't dwell on it. I'm, uh, sometimes my partner says that I should, even when he's sick and so I'm like, come on, get out, you can do this, come on, keep going. So that's my attitude, I guess. Picking, picking myself up and keep moving. Now we touched on this a little bit when we talked about your childhood, but how important is legacy to you? Oh, legacy is so important to me. That's, that's something that drives me every day. Every action that I take, I know it's going to have a repercussion and will inspire or not the next generation or someone like me. So... Legacy is a lot. Is a huge part of how I conduct myself in a day and what I what comes out of my mouth. And finally, your one golden rule to living a high performance life: tap into that young person that you were when you first started doing what you do, and the hopes and the excitement you had, and always keep it with you. Always keep it with you. As always have a place with you because that really overthrows all the other negative things that might come because you know there's, there's always something there for you to remind you do you know you you wanted to do this and there was something so special in the excitement 
You know what, Marcy, I can't thank you enough for doing this podcast with us. The phrase that keeps on coming back to me during this conversation is impose your will. I think imposing your will on things in life is so important because that's how you get stuff done. And as we talk, I get the impression that you are someone that has imposed your will time and time again, achieved your dreams. You'll continue to do that. And I think for anyone listening to this, whether they've personally gone off track a bit or maybe they've got young children and they want their children to live a great life, I think imposing your will on your world is a is a great message and that that's what i feel you've done thank you so much there's been very fun talking with you guys thank you damien jake you know what stands out for me from that conversation is that sometimes you speak to people full of self-belief and you have a sense they're arrogant he was so confident so full of self-belief he seemed to me to be so assured but not a speck of arrogance. Yeah, I think there's a really um, powerful idea that vulnerability is power. And I think the fact that he's so open, whether it's about his sexuality, whether it's about his own family background or the, the career he's pursued, that that being open, whilst it, we might perceive it as vulnerable, is actually really powerful. I think that's his that's his superpower. And you can look at all the things that have happened in his life, whether it is the fact that he grew up in a really poor suburb in Portugal, whether it is the fact he lost his dad, whether it is the fact he was put into foster care. And you can you can say that all those things could have created issues, but it kind of feels to me like the fight that he learned from an early age is po probably the fight that he uses every day on the stage. Yeah, he described it himself, didn't he, as fuel to uh, perceive something in the best light it possibly can and to make the best of it. So how do people who haven't had the kind of trauma he's had at a young age Let's take our kids, for example. How do our kids grow up with that fight in them? Because I worry that my kids are, are going to have it too easy and not never have that fight. There's some really interesting work done by um, a guy in Pennsylvania, a guy called Dr. Martin Seligman, who is often regarded as the, the founding father of the of positive psychology movement. And he's looked at how the kind of optimism that Marcellino shared with us can be nurtured. And his point is that, and it has a huge impact in terms of our health, our well-being, and our success in life. And it's how we perceive uh, difficulties. And he talks about what pessimists do is they perceive it in the three Ps. They, they make it personal. So people don't like me. They make it permanent. This happens every time. And they make it pervasive. Everybody hates me. Whereas if you can counter them and go, you know what, this is just a setback. It's not about me as an individual. They have the idea that, all things must pass. If I keep persevering, I'll get there. And the idea that it might be one or two people rather than everybody not liking you. That's where optimism gets nurtured and that's where it's real strength. And I think that has been come out loud and clear from the conversation we've just had. How did he make you feel while he was talking? I, uh, I felt a real warmth to him. And I think that came from that vulnerability that he just owns who he is. Yeah. And I think I, I, I felt a real sense of warmth and, uh, and you know, he's somebody that I would love to see go on and continue to flourish and make a difference. I felt jealous and I felt inspired. And I felt jealous because, like, he's almost half my age, right? And he is taking 100% responsibility and is so comfortable with who he is. And I'm still struggling with that. Even at 41, I still find I don't always tell the truth because I'm worried about how that might be perceived. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think, um, I think that is a really interesting observation, but I think, again, it comes back to that idea that if we own who we are, 
like Ant Middleton spoke about this when he spoke about it, that nobody can hurt you because you're that self-reflective that you own who you are, regardless of what anybody else wants to think or say. What an impressive young man. Yeah, phenomenal. Well, I really hope you feel lifted up by the amazing, talented, remarkable Marcelino Sambe. Please consider leaving a review or rating the pod. It takes no time at all, and it actually means the world to us because it helps us to reach even more people. Um, as well as that, do send us your thoughts and your questions about Marcelino, as you did after episode one about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. And uh, Damien's with me. So, Damien, should we dive into the digital post bag and fire through a few listeners' questions and comments from the last episode? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Right, let's do it then. Uh, first of all, hello to David DeMackin. He says, it's the first time I've listened to the High Performance Podcast. I was totally hooked by the concept. Ollie is one of my heroes, a proper team player, and he never settled for second best. The interview was excellent. I'll definitely go back through the back catalogue now. Hashtag Ollie at the wheel. Yeah, David and anyone else listening who hasn't listened to Series 1, feel free to do that. Um, first question, though, comes in from Josh on Instagram. He says, have you used any techniques from from what you've learned from the high performance podcast in your day-to-day life Damien yeah definitely um I, there's one that came from the Marcellino episode that we've just done he spoke about just that pure freedom that when you do something just do it with absolute freedom and I think um that's something that I remind myself of like for me doing a medium like this uh, sometimes you can feel a little bit self-conscious or a little bit worried about how people perceive you and I think I've reminded myself since we met Marcellino about sometimes just do it with freedom, just do the best you can and uh, don't necessarily worry about how others are responding to it. Yeah, that's really nice, actually. I think mine comes from the the Holly Tucker episode. And I did an interesting interview with Gareth Southgate, Damien, a few weeks ago. And he said he's listened to the podcasts and the Holly Tucker episode was his favourite one, which I kind of love, you know, because you wouldn't expect that necessarily, would you? Yeah. And, and I think... The reason why he liked it and the reason why I really felt kind of plugged into that episode with Holly was that she talked so much about taking responsibility, didn't she? All the time, taking responsibility for your actions, for your failings. And I'm such a firm believer in that. I I can't see any benefit at all in passing blame or fault anywhere else other than taking responsibility because you're not really passing blame or fault. You're just removing control aren't you? You're taking away control from yourself. Yeah. I mean, there was a billion, um, it's been sort of popular this week, hasn't it? That I know we both know Stuart Weber um, at Norwich and he's sort of uh, spoken about the relegation at Norwich and he's quoted that Dale Wimbrough poem of the man in the mirror that seems to have had resonance in terms of social media about when you point the finger at the man in the mirror, there's three fingers pointing back at you. So yeah, you're right. This idea of complete responsibility is a is a powerful, powerful concept. Okay, let's uh, let's do another question then. Yeah, this is from Fiona Mooney on Instagram that says, "Do you think people or society in general finds it harder to have faith in quiet leaders?" Well, I think absolutely, and I'll tell you one of the things that's that's changed my thinking is having a quiet child. So we have a really loud child. Florence and we have a really quiet child Sebastian now to the outside world Florence is confident and Sebastian is not if you know my children you will know that Florence is the one with the anxieties and the worries and the concerns yet to the outside world she's so loud and she's so confident whereas Sebastian has what I would call a quiet confidence he is just solid he's understated 
but he's absolutely confident in himself. And we f- we started when he was, you know, first seen as quite a quiet child. I used to apologise, and I'm almost embarrassed I did that now. I'd say in front of him, oh, yeah. sorry, my son's quiet, or oh, sorry, Sebastian's shy. Why do we have this opinion in society that loud is best? It's a nonsense. Yeah, very much. I think this idea that we're attracted to noise, to extravagance, to the loud people is is something that, as a society, we have this sort of intuitive sense of. But like you say, that even someone like the Ollie episode seems to have certainly started to challenge people's perceptions of just because you're loud doesn't mean that you're effective. And I think when... It certainly made me reflect after we interviewed Ollie of the quiet leaders, the ones that still get the job done without making a fuss. And you think of people, go back through history, Matt Busby, go, um, uh, Arrigo Saki, Bob Paisley. These are guys that were working in the shadows, but doing so really effectively. Whereas we remember the likes of Brian Clough and Jose Mourinho, the loud, um, extravagant leaders. And it's not that, one is better than the other. It's just there has to be room for both. Mate, look at social media. I mean, it's almost like the more ridiculous your opinion, the more oxygen you get. And maybe we should start giving credence and credibility to the quiet, understated, sensible people. But who knows whether that will happen. Oh, so many uh, so many comments as well. Thanks to uh, Sharpness06, who um, said, love your work, guys. Best pundits around. Didn't even know you were a pundit, Damien. There you go. Look, you've been... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> been elevated, <laughs> well, elevated sure to the that. ranks of punditry. <laughs> Justin Rice has just caught up with the pod with Oligan and Solskjaer. I have to admit, newfound respect for the guy. The visualisation of your life is what it's all about. Um, and that leads me on to um, a question from F 5 I want to get that right on Instagram. What do the 1% do different? What makes them be in the 1% and makes them unique? Oh, that's a brilliant question. I think the answer to that is um, humility. I think they go into the valley of humility where they know what they don't know, but that then inspires a curiosity to find out how they do something better. I remember many years ago hearing Alex Ferguson uh, talk about Ryan Giggs, and he said, Ryan Giggs will listen to anybody if he feels it'll help him improve his performance. He also said he had a built-in bullshit detector in his head that he quickly discerns whether the information is useful or not, but he starts from a position of being humble enough to at least explore if it makes him better. And I think that's been really interesting for me on the uh, meeting the guests that they're happy to ask us questions as much as we're asking them. And I think um, a built-in bullshit detector is something we could all do with, don't you? I, I really like the phrase, 97% of people are employed by the 3% who didn't give up. And I really like that phrase. And whether you want to be employed or you want to be an employer, it kind of doesn't matter. The point is, not giving up is the key. And I think with all of the guests that we've spoken to, what makes that 1% so different is they've all had the setbacks that everyone's had. They've all had difficult times. They've all had crap things go against them. But every single time, They've kept on moving forwards. They've not been derailed. They've not been demotivated. They haven't given up on the dreams. And sometimes it can take a hell of a long time, but it's worth the journey, isn't it? Be rigid about your goals, but flexible about the route that you get there. Yes, Damien. I love these little nuggets that you drop into the conversation. Uh, <laughs> what's the, what about the question from uh, Dragon Wales 9? That's a perfect one for you, actually, Damien, with the books that you've written. Yeah, so Dragon Wales 9 wrote the really interesting pod again. Thank you. Uh, lots of talk about cultural architects. Do you think 
the experience is a vital ingredient of a cultural architect or can these players and leaders fulfill that role by simply having the right attitude and habits? Well, that's a brilliant question. Um, The short answer is that cultural architects emerge via one of two criteria, social or technical. You either have to be the best at what you do, that people listen to you and respect you for that and defer to your judgment, or you have to have the right attitudes where socially people just want to follow you because you're doing the right thing and you do it when nobody else is looking. They're the two criteria that often distinguish cultural architects. So I don't think it's a matter of time. I think it's technical ability or social charisma. And take a look at what um, Ollie said actually in episode one about Marcus Rashford. He said to see Marcus taking that penalty, having never taken a penalty for the first team before in a huge Champions League game. Obviously, that was the moment that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer knew he had a cultural architect on his hands. He knew he had a leader on his hands and it wasn't because Marcus had played football for 20 years. It was because he had a rock-solid belief in his ability um, and he had the, the technical capability to carry that belief out, didn't he? Yeah, very much. And so if you think of what Ollie had said about one of the trademark behaviours at Manchester United is courage. What Marcus demonstrated by stepping up to do that wasn't taking a penalty when you're 5-0 up and you know you're already through. This is a guy taking a penalty that if you lose, you get knocked out of the Champions League. That's the courage that they're looking for. Brilliant. Um, Look, we haven't got time to go through all the questions, but we have had hundreds and hundreds. Um, So thank you so much for getting in touch. Thanks as always to you, Damien. Um, A pleasure to share this podcast with you. Honestly, it's it's incredible. Um, But from both of us, a huge thanks to you, our loyal, lovely listeners for getting in touch, for listening to the pod, for sharing your reviews and rating us. And I just hope that you can approach life with perhaps a newfound positivity and optimism after the chat that you've heard today with Marcelino Sambe. And please remember to share your thoughts with us. We don't want this just to be you listening to Damien and I on the podcast. The the two of us are really keen that this becomes a genuine community. Um, Thanks as well to the Argyle Club for the awesome recording location, to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio and all the team working on the High Performance Podcast. But mostly thanks to you for taking the decision to chase a high performance life. Um, So Sunday evening, Damien, don't forget eight o'clock Instagram live. I'll see you then. Look forward to it. Wonderful. Top man, Damien. Uh, Thanks to Damien. Thanks to you at home. And the two of us will see you very soon. 